Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Clive Moore. He is Emeritus Professor in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Today, we will be discussing his newly published book, Making Mala, Malaita in Solomon Islands, 1870s to 1930s, published in Canberra by Australia National University Press, 2017. Clive, it's a blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you for arranging this interview. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become? as an adult? Uh, I, I was born in Mackay, which is in North Queensland. So it's a lot, uh, Queensland is a, is a large state and uh, it's, uh, Mackay is in what we call the, it's in the north of the uh, state. And it's an area that was famed for sh- sugarcane. Uh, and uh, part of the, the remnants in a sense of the plantation era from the 19th century was that part of the population were descendants of uh, Pacific Islanders who were brought there between the uh, 1870s and the 1900s to work on sugar plantations and farms. So I was interested in becoming a historian. In fact, I uh, was largely trained at James Cook University, which is in Townsville, north of Mackay. And I was interested in the sugar industry and I soon realized, and, and in a sense, it's something, all of the history of the sugar industry had really been uh, documentary history. And I realized that if you're interested in the whole sugar industry, it's not just the farmers, it's the laborers as well. And mm-hmm. uh, the way to understand Pacific Islanders who really didn't write very much about themselves at all uh, was to go and talk to them. And what I what I did with funding from James Cook University in the nineteen uh, seventies through to about nineteen eighty one was to do take part with another colleague of a whole series of interviews with the descendants of the Pacific Islanders that in Australia we call them Australian South Sea Islanders. South South Sea Islander sounds an old fashioned term and it is, but it's what they were called in the nineteenth century. And the government records are all have after their names bracket SSI, South Sea Islander. So uh, they they have become Australian South Sea Islanders. And I got on well with them. It's not that I had any particular connection with them, just I was interested in their background and their part in the sugar industry. And then I um, took the step in 1976 to go out to the Solomon Islands before I wanted to do a PhD. And I used connections um, between those two communities in the Solomon Islands and in Mackay 
to go out to Malaita, which is where I had my main connections, which is one of the major islands of the Solomon Islands and provided a large number of the original uh, labourers to both Queensland and Fiji and to uh, begin to do field work there, which should, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm a historian, but I was interested in, in oral testimony and in collecting it and trying to see what their memory was of the uh, the labour trade. So it all goes back to then. It goes back, my first interviews were 1974 in Mackay, and then I went to the Solomons in 1976, and now I've been there, I, I did try and work it out once, about uh, six, about 60 times, I think, since then. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, it's 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 not the first book I've written on Malaita. The first book on Malaita actually came out of my PhD, which was completed in 1981. And then the book which came out of that was called uh, Kanaka, which is the, uh, the the basic word that they were called in the, uh, if they weren't called South, South Sea Islanders, they were called Kanakas, um, which is a fairly derogatory term. And uh, I wrote that. And then I always had in mind that that was about the migration, circular migration of Malaitans to Queensland. But I always had in mind to try and write a book about Malaita itself. That's not quite the... Looking at a migration of people from one island is not the same about then understanding the island itself. And the changes, historical changes take place that are to do with their involvement as labour, uh, both in Queensland and Fiji, but also internally in the Solomon Islands, the beginnings of missions, the beginnings of government processes, and how that changes people. And because you're dealing with an island that has about 12 different languages and about 12 different, therefore, 12 different cultures. So... Uh, when I write a book which I call Making Mala, it's about the making of modern Malaita. And the wording, as you can see from its title, is 1870s to 1930s. And my argument is that's the period in which the modern Malaita was developed. Now, Mala is the old name for Malaita. And Malaita, it actually means Malaitia, uh, which is a mistake because... Uh, when the uh, first Europeans went to the Solomons in the, the, the not, not quite the first, but when they went to the Solomons, and that, uh, the island of Isabel is the island which is to the north of Malaita, and you can see Malaita from there. So Europeans would say, uh, what's that island over there? And that the Isabel people said, Mala Itia, it is, it is Mala. So, so that's what it actually means. Mala is the name of the island. But it sort of means Malar over there. It's Malay and Malaita is it's 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 the island of Malaita. Um, that's how the so it should be called Malar, uh, not Malaita. But it is but it is by mistake called Malaita. <laughs> what are the primary themes in this book? What argument does your book advance? What story does your book tell? Well, I spend the first sort of chapter or so talking about the culture of Malaita, which is quite an, it's an interesting culture, uh, you know, it's, it's traditional culture, and what 
aspects of that because that culture what happens on all of the islands of the solomons is the original culture changes and accommodates to christianity and government and to participation in the labor trade and malaitans um more than any other island uh participated about uh what's the number uh i think about fifteen thousand malaitans left for queensland and fiji over about a 40-year period and they were the major migrantly people, migrantry people to Fiji and Queensland uh, out of the Pacific. So I was, I was interested to start with them to, to be able to picture Malaita, what it was like before, while it was just stable and no outside influences, and then to look at the way that it became involved in labour. And part of it, you have to backtrack a little in the Solomon Islands that Europeans start to go into, it's called the Western Solomons, uh, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's, if, if you're look, thinking geographically, it's the northern part of the Solomon Islands. Uh, whalers, many of them American whalers, some British whalers, uh, went into that area, uh, killing whales and collecting whale oil um, from about the really the 1790s, but particularly from about the 1820s to the 1860s. Then along comes the, Amer the American Civil War, of course, and most of the whalers leave. They're running out of Boston and they leave and they go back. The ships are actually incorporated back into, into the Civil War. But uh, it meant that people in the north were exposed to Europeans and exposed to trade goods, as we call them, you know, manufactured goods in a way that Malaitans weren't. There were no whales around Malaita. There were no ports. There were no whaling ports. Malaita was left to itself. And um, Malaitans had a bad reputation for being uh, difficult, in a sense, uh, to deal with. And the Europeans stayed away from there, which meant that Malaitans had no access to European goods. Why do they want European goods? You try and have a life where, where you're everything there's no steel there's no iron your cutting edges are, are stone the difference that is made with knives and axes and things like that changes the lives of people malatans had no access to these new goods the only way they could get them was going out of their island particularly overseas to fiji and queensland to work and then go back so it's a circular migration uh, to Queensland and Fiji. And then they brought these items back with them in a way that people, other parts of the Solomons, already had contact with Europeans. So Malaitans are the most significant people in Vanuatu and the Solomons in terms of the numbers that went into what we call the labour trade uh, uh, to uh, Queensland and Fiji. So that I was trying to, that, that's the first big change that comes. Many of the other places have uh, missionaries much earlier than Malaita. Malaita has has various um, has Anglican missionaries, uh, Catholics, uh, in, by the 1920s, Seventh-day Adventists, and uh, by the 1900s, a mission called the South Sea Island uh, Evangelical Mission. Um, about, say, about four different missions developing there but that was later if you say to, i've mentioned isabel island to you well isabel is 
things are changing by the 1860s, 1870s. They're not changing on Malaita in terms of Christianity until the uh, 1890s, 1900s, 1920s. So it's later. And the government, the British government, the protectorate government, uh, was first declared in 1893, not really had nobody on the ground until about 1896, 97. And then they concentrate on other parts of the Solomons, not Malaita. So even the government process, the missionary process is late, the labour process is important, and the um, government process doesn't start till 1908, quite late. And then it's not till, I would say, the 1930s that the... That the um, British Solomon Islands Protectorate government had any real control over Malaita. And Malaita is quite famous for what were, what are known as uh, pagans or heathens, in that there were always a residual group of people who kept to their old religions. There still are some now who are not Christian. They have decided to stay within their own religious and thought systems uh, which is very unusual. It doesn't apply anywhere else in the Solomon Islands. So that it, it's seen as a culturally conservative island, uh, and it's a late developer, in a sense, in terms of Christianity and uh, government. So what I was investigating was how that all impacted. And <clears throat> Malaita, you have to then... I really stopped the book in the 1930s. There's a bit which talks about the Second World War and there's a mention in there of the what we call the tensions, the period of civil unrest in the Solomons in from uh, 1998 uh, through to uh, 2003, which Malaitans are, are very much involved in. And so part of my thinking is trying to explain I don't believe Malaitans are, are conservative. I think they're badly painted, really. Uh, they have changed enormously. And after the Second World War, they began a nationalist movement called the Masina Rule, which, which is rule of the Brotherhood, um, which was to try and assert their rights over their own islands, which the British had you know, usurped. Uh, and then in what we call the tension, which is the period in the 1990s, uh, 2000s, Malaitans are one of the antagonist groups, on mainly on Guadalcanal uh, and the, the main city, which is Honiara. Uh, so that in a sense, I was trying to explain that as well. But the book stops largely in the 1930s because my argument is that the modern Malaita had formed out of 12 different Malaitas, if you like, uh, by about the 1930s. Is that a reasonable answer? Very long-winded one. Absolutely. That, that was very generous. Thank you. What is your book's contribution to the history of Melanesia and Oceania? How does your book advance your understanding of the South Pacific in the 19th and 20th centuries? Uh, Malaitan is, I would say, okay, Malaita is, uh, it's the most populated island in the Solomon Islands. Uh, it's, it's about 170,000 on the island even now in a country of uh, about 700,000. So it's a very significant island. Um, 
it's they are dominant people in the Solomons. They've also worked all over the Solomon Islands and married all over the Solomon Islands. They've been very good at planting themselves throughout the Solomons. Um, so that the, and in Honiara, the capital, there are there are probably at least forty percent of the people are from Malaita originally. So, if you want to understand the Solomon Islands, you have to understand Malaita. It's not possible to do it separately. And there are significant things that have occurred in the Pacific. One is uh, the Second World War, which was on Guadalcanal. Malaitans were part of that in terms of being laborers and being part of uh, military forces uh, with the Americans. And um, they became significant in the capital city, Honiara. And, uh, you know, they were significant in no other group stood up to the British. The Malaitans managed during Masina rule from just after the Second World War into the early 1950s to give the British, for, give, gave the British enormous shocks about what the natives were, were standing up to them, in a sense. Uh, and uh, the British had never seen, had to deal with anyone like the Malaitans before. So, uh, in terms of Pacific nationalism, Malaita is central to changes, particularly in the Melanesian islands, but really Pacific-wide, uh, in in the anti-colonial movements, which began to coalesce after the Second World War. And the Malaitans are central to that uh, in, in telling the British to, uh, that they weren't going to be pushed around anymore. What does your research reveal about the relations and interactions between Malaita and other islands of the Solomon Islands archipelago? Well, uh, as I said, Malaita is the most populous island. Uh, they are the main labor force of the Solomon Islands. They are the main inhabitants as, as a group of the capital city, and they are spread throughout the nation in a way no other uh, one island group is spread so that they have been extremely significant numerically and uh, particularly in terms of uh, labor uh, they have been an important uh, force um, and uh, the twice really the first time with Masina rule as i've described it to you and also, uh, more recently, with what we call the tension period, which is largely a tension between Malaita and Guadalcanal. Uh, not quite as simple as that, but that's more or less what was occurring. Uh, they have been very significant in directing and affecting the history of the Solomon Islands. It, it's Look, it's a, it's a long, thin country uh, with... You know, with hundreds of uh, islands and, and, you know, a few dozen sort of major islands. Um, and it doesn't affect all parts of it in a similar way. But in the central Solomons, Malaitans are very significant people. How does your book recontextualize the unrest in the Solomon Islands that has unfolded in recent decades? How can the tension years between 1998 and 2003 in the Solomon Islands and the Australian-led Romsey intervention be reinterpreted in light of your book's findings? Well, pe people have, as I said, Malaitans are seen as aggressors. My argument really is that the Malaitans, if you understand Malaitans, 
it's, it's wrong to paint them as aggressors. They were forced by circumstances in that there's no economic development other than traditional development on their own island to move particularly to Guadalcanal where there are oil palm plantations and rice plantations, there were, uh, and then into the city of uh, Honiara. And that sort of disenfranchised the people of Guadalcanal and they felt very imposed upon by by the capital city and by the development and by particularly by Malayan migration to uh, Guadalcanal. So, and then, then what occurred was the there was a movement by the people, some people in Guadalcanal, not all, uh, to expel Malaitans in particular. So about during that period, that tension period, about 20, because of um, physical violence by the people of Guadalcanal, 20,000, mainly Malaitans, were expelled from Guadalcanal. They had to go home. Now that's quite illegal. To, I mean, they're, they're citizens of an independent nation. One island can't expel people from another island. But, and that the people of Guadalcanal uh, started a, uh, a militia called the Isatambu Freedom Movement and expelled the Malaitans, just said, get out, get off our island. And culturally, and I knew this at the time, Malaitans. And other people from from the Solomons are the same. They won't stay somewhere they're not wanted. They will leave, and for the they will keep their families safe. But the Latins will be back. You do not treat them like it was a just disgraceful period. And the Latins formed the Malaita Eagle Force, which was another malicious group, militia group, which fought the people, the militia of Guadalcanal, and they took over Honiara. They took over the city of Honiara that the uh, Prime Minister was overthrown and uh, Malayan forces controlled the capital city. And that went on really from 1998 to about 2003 when you get the arrival of what's called Ramsey, but it's the Regional Assistance Mission to Solomon Islands, which was a Pacific Forum development controlled by Australia and New Zealand. But it, it involved... Pacific Forum is the political body... Uh, in the Pacific, which includes all of the nations of the Pacific, and they they had actually passed a uh, an agreement some years before that called the uh, Pikatawa Agreement, which says that they have the right that they would, if necessary, come to the help of any nation that had internal disorder, so that every single nation in the Pacific participated in a way that uh, really had never occurred before in the Pacific. And it was important that it wasn't white fellows like Australia and New Zealand are particularly uh, going in and pushing them around. It was very important that it's why I'm stressing it was a Pacific Forum development. Australia and New Zealand provided the money, mainly Australian, um, cost about, I think, about $1.6 billion, billion, something like that. Um, but uh, it was to try and, and look at, to, to re-establish governance processes to get the, to get rid of the guns to start with, because they broke into the armories, the police armories were raided for for weapons. So we had they had to get the weapons away from all sides, and then to um, convict people who 
deserve to be convicted, but largely to re-establish law and order, uh, the economic system and, and governance systems. And that's what Ramsey did between 2003 and 2017. But Malaitans are very much involved in what was occurring at that stage. And um, the book, in a, it doesn't, the book doesn't explain that, but it does in a sense, because by creating a background, you know, I don't, there's not a chapter on Ramsey, there's not a chapter on the tension, because the book stops in uh, the uh, 1930s, but it's quite clear what I'm doing, in that I'm trying to explain how Mela, modern Mela, modern Malata, was created so that it was capable of moving as one island, one people, rather than 12 different peoples on one island. Does that explain to you? Certainly. I'm very grateful for that detail. Thank you. How does your study advance our understanding of indenture and indentured labor? What forms of punishment and discipline were enforced in plantations in Malaita and the wider region? Well, uh, there are very few plantations on Malaita. There's only really uh, one plantation development, which is a church uh, plantation development, uh, which relates to a relates through to a mission and to plantations that existed in Queensland. But uh, largely they became a, a labour force off Malaita, not on Malaita, in, in terms of indenture. The whole indenture process is a very convoluted one. And you'll get people who'd say, oh, it was slavery, or it was a new form of slavery, or people would say that's the illegitimate child of slavery. Uh, they... It, it, was a mechanism of controlling labor that replaced slavery. But it is not slavery, because if you if you take a, a definition of chattel slavery as, say, it occurred in uh, the United States, uh, Africans were owned, they could be bought and sold, their children were bought and sold, they weren't paid. Now, with indenture, there was payment, uh, but it was very poor payment. Uh, it was uh, people were controlled by, I mean, in theory, people on indenture contracts could go to the courts just like the employers could, but in practice they don't. I mean, it's, it's the white employer <coughs> who takes them to court, takes the labour force to court. I mean, the, the islanders themselves don't have the ability to be able to do that. But there are other ways that they, I mean, I'm most familiar with Queensland, not with Fiji, but there were that they had mechanisms of control on the plantations themselves. Uh, and they're, they're traditional mechanisms that, uh, I mean, the you know, if your employer is being a total bastard to you, the best way is to set fire to the cane crop, you know, the, the that that I mean, there's there's nothing a, a cane plantation wants less than to have its crop burnt. Uh, so that, that you know there are ways that labourers can deal with uh, employers, uh, and also you've got islanders from eighty different islands coming to Queensland and also going to to Fiji. So that that, that there's immensely cultural complicated situations and Malaitans were fairly dominant but so were some other groups Tana, the people from Tana for instance in what's now Vanuatu were as um, uh, 
obstreperous, difficult as the uh, Malaitans were on, on plantations. So it's something, it, it, the movement of labor in the Pacific, it does involve in the early period kidnapping and total um, illegality. Uh, it involves racism. Uh, you know, it involves exploitation. There is an extremely high death rate at about 25 to 30 percent, which is horrific if you think about it. Uh, and yet, <clears throat> there's no way you can say they were all kidnapped and 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 controlled by force. They weren't. It wouldn't have been possible. Uh, so that you, what you have to understand is why they participated. Why they participated in it. Were they so foolish that they were tricked by uh, you know, employers and, and labor recruiters for the sake of guns and axes? Or what were they getting out of it? You could not. Uh, let, let me give you, there's a quote, a favorite quote of mine from uh, an anthropologist who says that you know, it's, it's demeaning to the intelligence of the people of Malaita to suggest that they stood on their own beaches year after year decade after decade and allowed themselves to be kidnapped by white men in rowing boats uh from what i've said about malatans you know the first time you might manage to kidnap them the second time they're going to get you it's not you know it, it is not a, a matter of superior um white power sort of dealing with pacific peoples which which which, which is what makes the story so interesting it, it's not simple it's extremely complex. It's not uh, slavery, but it has elements which are very similar to the process of slavery. And yet the people, but it's a circular migration of people and the people aren't owned legally. So you're dealing with, and yet you can say it's a totally disreputable process, which which uh, you know, the British and the French and the Germans participated in. Uh, and you know, I've, it's always been a fascination to me so that the Malaitans are crucial to the development of uh, uh, plant sugar plantations in particular, but also copra in Fiji and sugar plantations in particular in Queensland. Uh, and uh, when you've got so many people leaving an island like that and then coming back, mainly males, about 93% male, about 7% uh, female, it's going to change the nature of the society that's there. You're introducing foreign goods to the island. You're giving people experiences, good or bad, on plantations uh, overseas, but also in the Solomon Islands. Once, once you get the uh, British government established uh, from the 1890s onwards, Malaitans start to get drawn into working on copper plantations within the Solomons. So you've got to see them movement to Fiji, to Queensland, but also all over the Solomon Islands. And uh, it's it's a very complex process. So I suppose it's just, I've always had a fascination with Malaita uh, and, and the way that its labour was tapped, why it was tapped, and what changes is that a cause to the core culture of the island itself. There's my answer. Thank you. Can you comment on the variety and diversity of religious practices in Malaita? Malaitans are largely a Christian people, like all um, Solomon Islanders are, and there were four different missions that worked on Malaita. First, the Anglicans and the Catholics, 
then the South Seas Evangelical Church, which comes out of Queensland, and then the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, and then there is a residual group of Malaitans getting lesser all the time uh, who uh, kept to their traditional uh, religion and just refused to accept uh, Christianity. Now, their original religion, which all of them would have had up until the 1890s at least, um, is, again, Malaita is not simple. Uh, some of the areas are more hierarchical than others in their leadership. It's, all, it's always male leadership, which is dominant. But um, some areas, really, leadership is in, in terms of what we call big men, in that people become leaders because of their abilities to control and to get people to, to reward people for working, but for, for controlling them. But it's not a hereditary, inherited thing. Some parts of Malaita, though, particularly in the South, it is hereditary. So again, the culture of Malaita is not at all simple, and uh, it, it depends where you are on the uh, island. Uh, and the traditional religions really divide in authority is male, largely, and uh, it, it's ancestor worship, traditionally, but also in a sense totemic worship as well, but largely it's worship of ancestors. And uh, they, their authority is divided between uh, war leaders or warrior leaders, uh, chiefs and priests, because that you have to have sacrifices to the ancestors. So, but but it's those three leadership positions which aren't usually in one person, uh, which which vary quite a lot in the way that they uh, actually work. So. It depends whether you're talking about Christian leadership or Christianity, which dominates today, or if you're talking about Malayan religion as it once was, which is largely to do about about uh, placating and worshipping the spirits of ancestors. Why are the Solomon Islands called the Solomon Islands? Where does the name come from? Uh, it comes from the Mendana expedition in the 16th century, which was a, a Spanish uh, exploring expedition that came out of uh, South America, came out into the Pacific, and they were looking for the mines of King Solomon. Very sensible people. They wanted to find the, <clears throat> they wanted to know where King Solomon got his gold from, the biblical King Solomon. So when they got to the Solomons, they found a little bit of gold, used alluvial gold in some rivers and creeks, and they thought, oh, maybe this is where um, King Solomon got his gold from, so we'll call them the Solomon Islands. In fact, there was there is gold there, but they didn't find very much at the time. Uh, and but the, but the name there was no one name for the for the island group. It's not how it works. Individual islands have names, but they didn't conceptualize that the Solomon Islands. If you want to be uh, if you want to deal with the Solomon Islands, you're dealing from the islands which are now within Papua New Guinea. So it's Booker and Bougainville, and now there's a border between Bougainville and the Shortland Islands and what we call the Western Solomons, and which is where the modern Solomon Islands starts. And then it goes down to quite to a border with Vanuatu. But the bottom of the Solomons, so there's actually a gap, there's a water gap of about 300 kilometres uh, between uh, Makira, which is the edge of the central Solomons, and then the Santa Cruz group, which is at the bottom, which could just as easily have been French. It's just a matter of 
drawing, you know, it's the Germans and the British and the French are drawing lines and dividing up <coughs> what was called, called the Solomon Island Archipelago uh, between them. And it's, uh, you know, the, the result is three different nations uh, which relate to the to the modern Solomon Islands in some way, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. But it's it's a Spanish it's a Spanish name. It's stuck because there was no overall name for the archipelago of islands. You write as follows in chapter two: the British, their British, French, and German employers were imbued with European racial stereotypes common in the second half of the 19th century. These mixed ideas about a great chain of being with with newer Darwinian concepts. Europeans place themselves on the top of the scale with some variations in the ranking of other races. Melanesians were placed near the bottom, just above indigenous Australians with local variations, such as in Fiji, where the indigenous people were judged superior to New Guineans, Solomon Islanders, and New Hebrideans, a generation before the Pacific labor trade began, Britain had accepted slavery as normal. It was outlawed in the 1830s, and slavery had only been abolished in the United States a few years before the first Solomon Islanders were taken from their islands to work on plantations. Slavery continued to be legal in some other European jurisdictions until the late 19th century. Thinking resembling the racial justification for slavery was used to justify entrapment of Pacific Islanders, and even more liberal Europeans regarded the Islanders as niggers and savages who could be exploited brutally. How much Malaitans understood the contempt with which they were viewed is difficult to discern. Three things are clear. First, Europeans were almost uniformly frightened of what they regarded as a Malaitan propensity for violence, whether against recruiters working in Malaita or on the plantations and farms in the colonies and the protectorate. Second, Malaitans seldom acknowledged the supposed superiority of Europeans or other racial and ethnic groups of laborers. In fact, they often seemed to have felt superior themselves and failed to absorb the message that they should know their lowly place in the European race class hierarchy. The third point is that before the Second World War, Malayan men had had already worked with men and some women of many ethnicities and races for seven for over 70 years. Much is made of the effect of Solomon Islanders meeting Black Americans during the 1940s, although this was clearly influential in shaping the thinking that led to Maasina rule, it was not a totally new phenomenon. Can you elaborate upon this passage for us? Well, I, th- I think that elaborates quite well as it is. Uh, I'm not quite certain what I can add to that. I mean, it, it the, the way that Europeans looked at Pacific Islanders had variations in, in a scale, but they were, they were seen as pretty low down the human scale. Uh, and then they probably thought Polynesians were, uh, you know, more culturally acceptable, and Fijians were more culturally acceptable than the people of uh, Solomon's or uh, Papua New Guinea. So the, the, there is a degree of contempt, you know, and, and it's just it's just a, a general misunderstanding and just no understanding about the cultures 
of the islands. They're incredibly complex cultures um, out there. And they're not simple. And once you understand the rules and regulations of uh, any particular island group, you will find it enormously complex. And you end up uh, with a great deal of um, uh, admiration, really, for the complexity of the cultures. Now, it took Europeans a long time to be able to see that. So, yes, they're being treated, treated as racially inferior. Uh, but as I said, that they were very important. One thing is they were sort of isolated <clears throat> uh, from Europeans and from the outside world. Um, but the labour trade meant that they worked with lots of other people. So in a sense, from the 1870s onwards, they start to be exposed to 20 or 30 different island groups from you know all over the place. Um, and to say that they are sort of just uh, ignorant of what's going on is is wrong. That, and look, they are a dominant people. This is why that, that they do fascinate me, because that they did have a bad reputation. Uh, if you look at the uh, uh, in Queensland, for instance, if you look at uh, the uh, murders which occurred amongst Pacific Islanders, you will find that about fifty or sixty percent of them are caused by Malaitans, uh, when there are about eighty islands involved. So that gives you an idea that you don't want to get in the way. Uh, and uh, people learn to respect uh, their abilities and they were seen as, a, as an aggressive people. But look, you've got to take put the whole thing in perspective. <coughs> uh, in the 19th century, the people in the northern part of the Solomons, that we call the Western Solomons, uh, were headhunters. So they raided from island to island you know, killing people and collecting their heads and taking them back as trophies. These Malatans never did that. Uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, it, it was an, an, an aggressive culture generally in the Solomon Islands, and Malatans are probably at a one end of it, um, but uh, they, it doesn't mean that the others were, were all gentle uh calm, nice people, the, the, the cultures of Melanesia can be quite um, aggressive. Uh, so Malaitans are amongst the... Uh, but Malaitan aggression was preserved. Malaitan masculinity and aggression, in a sense, is preserved long after Christianity has taken root and then calmed people down in other parts of the uh, Solomons. So... Um, as I said, it takes to the 1930s, whereas in some other islands, it's really changing by about the 1890s, 1900s. They're 30 years late before they start to uh, to change. And, you know, today, uh, I mean, they're, they're a very Christian people. Um, so that they are, well, I suppose what I'm stressing is that throughout the Solomon Islands, you were a great complexity in cultures. And Malaitans aren't, but by no way are they uh, totally different from other Solomon Islanders. Just other Solomon Islanders had reasons because of government or because of missionaries or of plantations being established that they changed more quickly. Malaitans were slow to change and uh, weren't very keen on the process of change. Uh, but, and as I said, I, I think they sometimes saw themselves as superior 
to the rest of Solomon Islands and, and to Europeans. Europeans had no idea that these, you know, what they regarded as savages were looking at them and sort of saying, you know, we know better than you do. Uh, so that the, uh, the way that they were dealing with um, their new surroundings in, in a colonial period uh, was influenced by labour, was inf influenced by their own culture, and was influenced by the rate of change in terms of government and policing. <laughs> the lack of plantations on the island, plantations are throughout many other islands, um, and the, their participation in, in as labourers. So, you know, it's a very complex, I said that the summary, I, I quite like my summary that you read out. It seems to me that that deals with most of the uh, issues quite succinctly. Can you describe the geography, demography and topography of Malaita Island? It's a long skinny island. Uh, it's about uh, 120 kilometres long and... Uh, usually only about 30 kilometers wide with a mountain range, a mountainous spine that goes up to about 4,000 feet. So that largely the, in, and, and people didn't live around the coast. They lived uh, inland and uh, in the mountains and they were subsistent. They, they used you know, subsistence agriculture uh, in terms of their farming. Uh, and Malaita said, therefore, is, is mountainous. People didn't live around the coast. Missionaries and governments dragged them down to the coast. It's far easier to administer people if you've got them living on the coast. If they're up in the bush or in the mountains, it's much harder to get mission services or government services to them. So the government encouraged, and they lived in small hamlets, not even large villages, so that one of the things the government and missionaries did was to... Uh, tell them what wouldn't it be nice if you came to live around the coast and lived in nice big villages so it would make us make it easier for us to deal with you and that's largely what happened they came together into bigger groups but as an island it's like Guadalcanal has large areas of plain land and some other of the islands have reasonably large areas where you could build you, know, you could put copper plantations Malaita had a large population, so there wasn't much spare space. Couldn't say this is just unused land. I'm going to you know, knock it off for a, a plantation. And uh, there aren't. There's only one area on the east coast where you have a, a large, pl flat plain area, uh, and there's still not a great deal of development even there. So um, Malaita escaped economic development uh, largely. And uh, the island what just wasn't very friendly to commercial development. It, it, and that's to do with topography and geography, largely. Very high rainfall. Uh, on the east coast of Malaita, it rains all of the time. Uh, so, uh, you know, it can be very wet as well. You've got to think about that in terms of geography. Uh, and the, the east coast is very exposed to winds. So the west coast is probably a bit more sheltered. The East Coast is, uh, there's some quite good harbours, but um, the weather is not good. Can you tell us about the Hospital of the Epiphany at Fo'abu? Why is it notable? Well, it was an Angli it was the major Anglican hospital uh, on the island, uh, and it's uh, north of, the, the, the main headquarter town was called Aoki, 
uh, which is at the top of Langalanga Lagoon uh, <clears throat> on the uh, west coast. Faabu is a, a an Anglican mission hospital, and it's also quite well known because it had a leper colony or a leper hospital there as well. There were several of those scattered around the Solomons uh, because leprosy. There's some very nasty diseases which have now been eradicated in the Solomons. One was yours, which is a, a absolutely horrible disease, which where you get sort of large sores and and uh, really you know, eat, eating into the body uh, and uh, leprosy as well was uh, also a, a large problem on many of the islands so these things have now gone but uh, leper colonies were not unusual in, in, whereas the you know the Catholics had some, Anglicans had some, the government had some to try and uh, isolate people but to help them as much as they could and the Anglicans had one at the uh, at Fa'abu on the uh, west coast in 1871 Anglican Bishop John Pattison was killed on Nukapu Atoll in the Reef Islands seemingly in retaliation for labor trade kidnapping what specifically happened can you describe what is known about him and the circumstances surrounding his death? Well, it's a bit mysterious. Uh, yes, yes, the, the more ignorant people are inclined to say that it was to do with retaliation for the labour trade. But the most recent research suggests that there are a lot more complex reasons why he was uh, killed to do with local disputes and that it wasn't necessarily just retaliation for the labour trade. Uh Patterson was the Anglican bishop of uh, Melanesia and uh, was a missionary bishop so that he travelled through the islands. And in the 1860s, he was out there. What, what the Anglicans used to do, the way that they dealt with missionary work was to, it's a bit like the labour trade in a sense, they recruited labourers, uh, they recruited people to take back to learn in their mission schools and then hopefully turn them into good Christians and use them as a, a force to bring Christianity organically almost into the islands so that he was out there getting people to go away with him and he went to the uh, that atoll in the uh, south of uh, what's now the modern Solomon Islands and uh, he was killed there but the and I said that people are I still blame the labour trade. The, the the more recent research suggests that it was never as simple as that, uh, and that he was killed for a variety for for a variety of reasons. Can you tell us about Reverend Arthur Hopkins? Why is he notable? Well, he's he's an Anglican uh, Anglican missionary uh, in the Solomons, mainly in Lau Lagoon, in the uh, northeast. What you've got to also realise that Malaitans, I've given the impression they all live up in the mountains. Uh, there, there are three large areas of people who live in lagoons who build artificial islands off the edge of Malaita. And that's Langalanga Lagoon on and Ariari Lagoon on the uh, west coast and uh, Lao Lagoon on the northeast coast. So that he was a, an Anglican missionary who worked with the people mainly in Lao Lagoon. Uh, and he's just a, a very long-term, a long-staying Anglican missionary 
who was there. There, there are others that are similar to him, uh, but uh, it's not totally significant. Uh, but, you know, he learned the local language and uh, spent a long time living with the people there. Who is Peter Abu Offa? Can you Peter, tell us about him? Peter Abu Offa was a labourer who went to Queensland from uh, North Malaita, and he worked uh, one term in Queensland, and then he converted to Christianity through what was the South, there was what actually called it, then it was called the Queensland Kanaka Mission. And it became the South, what happened in 1906 when Australia deported most of the South Sea Islanders, uh, he'd actually, the, the mission, which was the called the Queensland Kanaka Mission, closed in Queensland and moved to the Solomons. Part of the reason it moved there is they got that the missionaries got on very well with the Malaitans, and Ambuafa was Christianized through that Queensland Kanaka mission. In the 1890s, he went back and independently started to be a missionary all by himself. So he became the most significant indigenous missionary for that uh, church, which is now the what's called the SSEM. South Seas Evangelical uh, Mission, and it's now it now has the same name, but it's got rid of mission, and it, it's called the church. So he's a, a North Malayan who introduced Christianity <laughs> to uh, that area of Malaita. Very important character. Who is Ishmael Idumauma Itea? Ishmael Itea is my adopted father in the Solomon Islands, and the person to whom I probably owe most in terms of my understanding of uh the solomon uh, of malaita because you know i lived with him and his family in 1976 and i always stayed in the in his village when i went back uh he was the uh when i knew him he was the government what's called the government head man which is the uh the main administrative officer i suppose for the area he'd been brought up as a pagan or a heathen he taught himself which i always find fascinating he taught himself to read and write he had no education, taught himself. Uh, that's not all that unusual. They used the Bible as their textbook, basically, and they learned to read and write uh, by by studying the Bible and learn, learn the alphabet and learn to read. So that he was a really a self-taught man, but he was a very powerful man. He, so he's, he's adopt, my adopted father. He was an important uh, administrative official. He was an important Seventh-day Adventist uh, in the area uh where i lived for most of the times i've been there and he was a lovely man but but very a very powerful traditional leader he'd made the conversion to christianity but people were frightened of him because of his power he had traditional powers can you tell us about quaesilia can you elaborate on his importance right quaesilia quaesilia is a uh Lao Lagoon man who also went to Queensland and then came back again. And many of them, they go and they do a circular migration of one, three years or maybe two, three years and, and come back again. And he became an important, uh, like uh, Ambuafa did in the far north, he became the most important leader in Lao Lagoon. And he was what is called a passage master. And you mustn't think that Europeans operated in the labour trade totally 
alone. It's a bit like the African slave trade in that if you really dig around, you'll find that there are Africans who are organizing the movement of slaves. In uh, the Solomons, you've got what, you, what are called passage masters, passage being a, a way through the reefs. And the passage master would organize the labor trade or the recruiting trade for Europeans so that they would make certain that laborers were available. And Quaesilia was, was the uh, most important of those passage masters in uh, North Malaita, particularly in Lao Lagoon. So it's just a, an example of two uh, Malaitans, one a missionary uh, you know, who went to Queensland, and Quaesilia was a very early uh, uh, labourer in the 1870s. He came back, used his skills that he had, English, English language skills, and was able to negotiate with the Europeans and made himself quite wealthy out of uh, moving labour around. What was the Whiskey Army Expedition? Can you explain it? Well, it's almost it's almost out of the period, but the uh, in 1920s there were government offices on Malaita onwards from 1908. That the most long-serving one was a guy called William Bell, um, and in the 1920s the protectorate government started collecting taxes from people to run the protectorate. So, and it wasn't uh, tax collectors aren't people's favourite people uh, usually, and they certainly weren't on Malaita. So that they, Bell would turn up with his police to try and collect what are called head taxes. So from women weren't taxed, but the males were taxed, and in a sense, it's a way of forcing people to work as labourers because they've got to earn money to pay their taxes to the government. And in uh, 1927, he was collecting taxes. Uh, at uh, Sinarangu uh, on at Nikoyo area of uh, East Malaita, and they all had to line up. The police were there with him. They lined up, and uh, one of the they decided to kill him. And uh, one of the leaders um, put a, a rifle butt through his head and smashed his skull, and killed many of the uh, like many of the police were killed as well. The Whiskey Army is the group of Europeans from the uh, Solomon Islands who retaliated against the death of William Bell and his police. So that what happened is that they telegraphed to Australia and said, please, can you, you know, I mean, the Australian Navy was really, in a sense, a British part of the British Navy then. Uh, and they sort of said, help, give us a ship. So they sent uh, HMAS Adelaide across with a uh, smaller um, vessel with it mainly to carry fuel. And they picked up, that, so they had sailors on board, obviously, and uh, they picked up uh, planters and a sort of the whiskey army, it meant that they were, you know, fueled on whiskey. Um, and they went over and attacked the uh, Malaitans for killing the government officer. So that's that's why it's called the whiskey army in that supposedly they were pretty drunk when they were doing it, but they caused a lot of havoc, far more, you know, they caused a lot more death and destruction than uh, was warranted for uh, what what they had done. But you see, the British don't like people killing their government officials, and, uh, and neither did the other. They thought it was going to be a, a malignant uprising. That's what the Australian government was told. 
that the Malaitans were rising up and they had to be put down. And that's the origin of the uh, the Whiskey Army. What was the death toll and what were the broader ramifications of this massacre? Uh, I don't, offhand, I can't remember the exact death toll. What it meant was that, I mean, the police were local police and therefore many of them were killed, which caused resentment, very long term, decades and decades of uh resentment for uh, those from the, the families of those police that were uh, killed. Um, and uh, you know, it's the, the people of the area, were, the, the, the British really devastated them in the attack. And then those people have claimed compensation against the British and the British sort of say, oh, I'm sorry, we're not in charge of the Solomons anymore. Go away. Um, but uh, the, uh, the the Koyo people have never forgotten or forgiven the the, the Koyo massacre, as it's called usually, uh, which was an extremely it, it wasn't just dealing with the people who caused the original deaths. It it was you know wholesale slaughter of people. That's what the British did. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone next? After completing this book, what have you worked on subsequently? Well, I've also, in the same series, I wrote a book on Tulagi, which is the uh, 19th century, from the 1890s onwards until the Second World War, the capital of the Solomon Islands, which is an island in the uh, Nagala group in the Solomon Islands. And I wrote a book on Honiara, which is the modern post-war capital of the um, Solomon Islands, uh, which is on Guadalcanal. So that there are two, uh, This is, I mean, making Mela, for those that don't know it, it's quite a large book. Uh, Tulagi is a large book, and so is the uh, Honiara book. I've also edited, I've done lots of different jobs in the Solomons. I've uh, I edited a, an online historical, it's called Solomon Islands Historical Encyclopedia that anyone can access uh, very easily. And um, it's about a thousand photos and many, many words. Uh, it's a full-size encyclopedia. And I've did work uh, on. I wrote a book on uh, uh, the, the what they call the tension years, uh, Happy Isles in Crisis, when things went wrong in the uh, 1990s, uh, 2000s in the uh, Solomons. And more recently, I've been helping an old friend of mine, his chancellor of the university there, uh, to, I've been editing his autobiography, and I'm now an adjunct professor at the Solomon Islands National University, so I've been helping them in various research ways. But I, having written several large books on the Solomon Islands, I think I've had enough of writing books on the Solomons. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to convey my heartfelt gratitude for your generous and erudite wisdom and responses as shared in today's dialogue. I could not be more blessed or more grateful. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And as I said, I, I published this is a book which I started writing and collecting material for really in the 1980s, and it took a long time to write uh, on and off. I didn't no, didn't do it all at once. And uh, I was published in 2017, which is now seems quite a long time ago. Uh, and it was um, 
quite an achievement to to be able to write it uh, because it was a very slow book, I can assure you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host today on the New Books Network podcast, Ari Barbalat. I have been honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Clive Moore. He is Emeritus Professor in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. We have been discussing his newly published book, Making Mala, Malaita in Solomon Islands, 1870s to 1930s, published in Canberra by Australian National University Press, 2017. Thank you. Thank you, Ari.